This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. I've got a double feature of brain hacks to get your creativity back on track. And I just realized that that actually rhymes. So, I mean, you got to like like this podcast or just follow it for just the fact that I rhymed unintentionally. That's amazing. But check out these episodes on the best time to brainstorm and how to jumpstart your brain through improvisation. This episode is all about analyzing brain fog, which, oh my God, I know way too much about. Fun fact about me, I don't actually fall asleep, I just crash. I have a perfectly wonderful mattress, new in fact, but on any given night, you can find me passed out on my couch with my laptop open on my stomach. It's really bad. Because of my work schedule and dismal sleep habits, I feel like I'm in a perpetual state of brain fog. That feeling where I can't concentrate and my thoughts run together or wander off completely. I think we all know how brain fog feels, but what exactly is it? Even the framing of the question kind of speaks to the complexity of the issue. You know, what exactly is brain fog? That's Dr. Jeff Egler. He's a medical director and lead physician at Inspire Health Center in California. And one problem he's very familiar with is brain fog. It's more of a constellation, a loose constellation or grouping of symptoms that more collectively is known as brain fog. That constellation of symptoms that I'm talking about can be anything from difficulty thinking clearly, problems with your concentration, problems with your attention, problems with your memory, problems with creativity. You may not be able to think clearly or even to function clearly. So brain fog can actually be responsible for or associated with issues of motor instability or, or, or lack of coordination, for example. So it's pretty much an umbrella that includes any kind of cognitive or mental decrease in your capacities. Right. And, you know, I feel like most people may assume that lack of sleep is the main contributing factor of brain fog, but what are some causes that aren't so obvious? I could make an argument for that. It's really just on the metabolic level, on the cellular level, your cells that help work together to create greater units like your brain and to bring about thoughts and your level of consciousness are not working on that elementary level as well as they could or should be. And so when you think about it from a functional level, so why aren't they working well? And so Maybe it's they're not you're not getting the proper food, so nutrients. Maybe you're not getting the proper amount of rest, which basically translates into a lack of repair and restoration on the cellular level. Maybe you're not getting proper energy because elements of your cells are not able to process the nutrients that you're getting correctly. But then there's also the process of inflammation. Getting back to your question of what can cause this. Anything that causes inflammation can cause brain fog. Inflammation is 
the immune system responds to something that it doesn't like. So it doesn't like foods that don't fit for you. It doesn't like not getting a lot of sleep and it doesn't like stress. So when trying to answer the question of what else can cause this, I often tell the patients that I work with, there's only one cause of disease, only one, and that is stress. But there are infinitely many causes of stress. So what are the stressors? And, and usually it breaks down to, like we've already talked about, food, sleep, relationships, work. How do we move our bodies or not move our bodies? So are we getting enough exercise? Are we getting the right ex- amount of exercise? Are we getting too much exercise? Relationships. Are the stresses coming from our work relationships or our home relationships? And these can have metabolic effects on us and, and lead to stress reactions, which lead to immune reactions, which leads to improper or suboptimal nerve function. And there you go. That's brain fog. Brain fog sounds like the number one killer focus and productivity. That is until it's not. Dr. Marika Veet is a psychology professor at Albion College in Michigan. And in 2011, she studied groups of people solving two types of problems at different times of the day. One set of problems were more analytical, like math questions you see on the SATs, and the other set of problems were insight-based. That is to say, they were more open-ended. Dr. Veet found that the time of day had no impact on the subject's ability to solve the analytical problems. But participants did their best work during their non-optimal time of day meaning they were more creative when their brains were a little foggy or sleepy. Simply put, when your mind feels distracted or unfocused, when you find yourself looking up cat videos or recipes for dinner instead of focusing on the task at hand, that's actually when your mind is most open to creative ideas and solutions. I chatted with Dr. Veet about how we can apply this to our own lives. So, I mean, during your optimal time of day, your cognitive processes, especially a process called inhibition, is working very well. So inhibition basically keeps your brain free of clutter. Uh, It's really good at screening out irrelevant things and focusing you on the task that you need to be focused on. So, for example, you're sitting in front of your computer and in the office next door, your colleague is talking on the phone. During your optimal time of day, you're able to really just screen that out and focus on the paper you're writing or uh, whatever you're doing at the moment. During your um, non-optimal time of day, your uh, cognitive processes, your inhibition isn't as good at screening out things. So you're distracted by your colleague that's next door talking on the phone. You just cannot ignore you know, what the person is saying and you just kind of are part of their conversation. Or uh, you keep thinking about that fight you had with your significant other or your mom or something like that and you just can't make your mind stop. Because inhibition at that point, the ability to just kind of screen things out, keep your mind clutter-free, is not quite as effective. So that's what I find so interesting about this study, because most people would assume that having their mind race with a million thoughts other than the task at hand would be a distraction. So how can people channel this particular state of mind into something productive or useful? I mean, for me, sometimes it's, you know, I think about things a little bit, then I get distracted and I wander off on the internet. Mm -hmm. I do the exact same thing. And then I wander off on the... (laughs) Right? I do the exact same thing. And, you know, during your optimal time of day, that's unlikely to happen. You're probably going to focus in on what you need to do. Let me kind of bring in another study I've done more recently that kind of puts a little bit of a caveat on top of that. 
So I did a study looking at ADHD symptomology. So not individuals diagnosed with ADHD, but self-reported ADHD or inattention type issues. So it was kind of a questionnaire that said, you know, my mind wanders and kind of rated from one to seven how often that happened. And I had people fill out that questionnaire and then they completed uh, creativity tasks. And what I found was that the higher you indicated kind of inattention or ADHD-like symptomology, the more creativity, but only for things that are very familiar. For things that are less familiar, you also needed to be a person that was able to converge or use convergent thinking on a good idea. For example, if someone gave you a stack of paper clips and said, make something with this, your mind will probably go back to your childhood where you made a necklace or a bracelet. But what if you were asked to think of a creative use for a picnic table? You might get a little stuck. Also, when you really think about it, is paperclip jewelry all that creative? More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Brain fog can be helpful to unlock your creativity. However, those freewheeling ideas of yours are probably garbage. No offense. Here's Dr. Veet on why it's important to edit your creativity. So uh, divergent thinking is what people think of when they say brainstorming. So it's where you just come up with as many possible thoughts or ideas on a subject. You're not evaluating whether or not those are particularly creative or even particularly feasible. I've had people list that they want to do a dragon sculpture with paper clips, which would be quite an undertaking. A convergent approach is where you then evaluate whether or not something is unique, original, or meaningful, where you kind of think about, does this idea, is this idea feasible? Does this idea make sense? Is this something that's doable? When they have those moments where they have lots and lots of thoughts, that's great. They might need to write those down. And then maybe at a later point when they're able to evaluate those thoughts. Because another very important part of creativity is being able to evaluate which ones of these are worthwhile, which ones of these are original, which ones are meaningful, and which ones are, um, aren't really that original. So when your mind wants to wander, let it. Follow those meandering trains of thought because you might make unexpected connections. That said, you should go back when your mind is a bit more focused and whittle your ideas down. That, of course, is the cognitive way of thinking. But what does a medical doctor think about brain fog being linked to creativity? Here's Dr. Egler again. The reason I think that people get creative when they are not necessarily at their sharpest, how we would define sharp in, I think, a more conventional way, is because their inhibitions are down. Their usual roles of thinking, the structure that we're all sort of taught to think in when you're at work, are flexed. They're loose. And so when those rules come down, we're able to think outside the box a little bit. I mean, that's where the terminology came from, you know, being able to think outside the box. And that's where a lot of creativity comes from. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that your consciousness is impaired, like brain fog. It means that it's just sort of different. You're on a different level. I think we all have high points and low points in our respective days, in our weeks, in our in, in the season of our lives, etc. So point being, I wouldn't even call that brain fog. I would just sort of, yeah, you're a little foggy because you're tired or you know, maybe you ate something that didn't agree with you, but it's a more temporary condition. And quite frankly, I, I, I hear and have experienced personally all the time huge strides in creativity when I'm a little off, when I'm a little tired. <laughs> so would you call it brain mist instead of brain fog? Or <laughs> how would you describe sure, I it? I like that. I like that. <laughs> okay, so brain mist it is. And it should be said that this misty state of mind isn't just for designers or artists or writers. Learning how our brains prefer to focus or not can be useful to anyone. You know, actually, I think it's something that everybody can benefit from. I mean, one of the um, misconceptions about creativity is, you know, when people say creativity, they they think of things like artists, the designers or whatever. But for a lot of us that study creativity, it's really about everyday creativity. So anybody that comes up with something original or sees a new connection between things or is uh, thinking about something outside of the box, right, in a different way. And and that happens, I think, in all kinds of fields. I mean, my dad was a was an engineer. He was very a very German engineer, so he was from Germany, and he very much approached things in a very, very systematic manner. And to my own surprise, that when I kind of talked to him about this research, that he very much agreed with, you know, what I had found. He was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, when I'm trying to come up with new ways to solve a problem, you know, I just kind of try to sit back, close my eyes, and just think about random things. And I'm like, whoa, okay. So that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, the, the those, that type of thought process is just in, in everything, and in, in we do those kinds of things everywhere, and I can't really think of a profession where we don't at some point have to open up our mind and think of different possibilities and then be able to pick, like, what, what this, right, is this, is this something that's appropriate? So let's review. During the time of day when you feel your focus drifting and your thoughts aren't as sharp as you'd like them to be, you're in your non-optimal state. That means your mind's inhibitions are lowered, making it a great time to attack a piece of paper or whiteboard with all your most off-the-wall ideas. But don't make a decision just yet. Wait, wait, wait. Slow down. You should wait until your optimal time of day to whittle things down a bit and determine what the best ideas are. Brain fog, or better yet, brain mist, shouldn't be a time for you to get so frustrated that you can't focus. It could be a prime time to unleash some of your most creative ideas to date. That's it for this episode of Creative Conversation. If you like what you're hearing, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear what you're thinking. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. On our next episode, how uncertainty and creativity go hand in hand. If we feel uncertainty, we might fear that other people might see us as incompetent. So if you're a leader and you don't know what to do next in this situation and somebody's turning towards you and wondering where this meeting's headed or where this next step is going to be and we don't know, we fear that incompetent. So I think that negative association that we sometimes have with uncertainty can impede us from seeing the creative opportunities that uncertainty presents. And so I think we therefore lose opportunities to actually 
do things in new and sometimes better ways. come as no surprise that improvisation is seen as some kind of holy grail for creativity, and in many ways, that's not too off the mark. Whether it's comedians, musicians, writers, the act of creating something new and interesting out of next to nothing is quite remarkable. But what exactly is going on inside an improvising brain, and how can we apply that kind of creativity in our everyday life? My name is Charles Lim. I'm the Francis Sui Professor of Otolaryngology Head Neck Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco where I run the cochlear implant programs uh, and the sound and music perception lab, as well as being the chief of otology, neurotology, and skull-based surgery. He's also a jazz saxophonist. One of the key tenets of jazz is improvisation, right? Taking the music on paper to elevated and unexpected heights. So Dr. Lin became curious. What do the brains of jazz musicians look like as they're creating their art on the fly? Using an fMRI machine, Dr. Lim found that activity in the medial prefrontal cortex shot up while activity in the lateral prefrontal cortex plummeted. In short, and for all the lay people out there, including myself, that means that the area of the brain responsible for self-monitoring shut off while the area for self-expression lit up during improvisation. But how does that play out when you're not stuck in an fMRI machine? I think when you're learning an instrument and playing a score, for example, or sheet music, you're so concerned with playing things correctly and following this kind of roadmap that's in front of you that that really becomes the task. It's almost like an obstacle course. It's like, how well can you do this task? And I, I kind of felt like that process was very rule-oriented. It was very um, particular, like very specific. And in a way, there was no real freedom in any of it. And then when I would switch to playing something that was primarily improvisational, I kind of felt myself, in a way, suspending all of those concerns and then trying to instead think about, well, you know, who am I, right? Who am I musically? <laughs> and is there a way for me to represent myself, what I think, what I feel, what I care about in the notes I'm going to choose? And when you're first doing it, it feels very clumsy. And then I think what happens is, as you get more technique and you get more comfortable, and maybe as you get older, it starts to feel more authentic. And then you start to believe that you're actually representing yourself musically. And then at some point you feel like, oh, not only am I coming up with something new, I, I, I like what I'm playing. It sounds like what I want and it's very enjoyable. And then I talked about freedom. Suddenly you have a sense of freedom. I think that you suspend all the concerns with the rules and you just play what you want to play. And it's, I think, very liberating. Right. And I think what we're talking about right now is just inhibition. And I feel like that's one thing that keeps people from being creative is that feeling of, you know, they don't want to be wrong. They're trying to be as risk averse as possible. What does that look like in our brains exactly? Yes. Now, I think that's exactly right. So when you are doing something that is, you know, as I say, a, a very complex memorized task and their whole focus is on getting it right, I think a whole different set of brain mechanisms come into play that are mediated by the prefrontal cortex which is this kind of effortful planning and conscious self-evaluation of the accuracy or appropriateness of your output. Right? And so like constantly, your brain is checking itself, like, was oh, that right? Was that right? Am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? And there's a this sort of like template that you're trying to adhere to, this ideal template, and then a comparison 
with what's actually going on versus that template. And so that, that process, I think, has its very own distinct neural signature. And then when you switch, when you start improvising, at least on the basis of some of the science experiments we've done, most of the very high-level players, I'm talking about you know, professional musicians, we see a generalized shutdown of a lot of these conscious self-monitoring areas when they start improvising. I'm not saying that the brain turns off. I'm saying that they're a lot less active during improvisation than during memorization, what we call is a relative deactivation. It's actually lower than compared to a baseline rest period. So there's a, this idea that the amount of blood flow that's going to these areas of the brain during these creative times or these sort of flow states, if you will, have a relative shutdown of these conscious self-monitoring, effortful planning areas of the brain. I think that's sort of, in a way, the letting go subjectively. I think that's the kind of neural correlate of this letting go. A big part of improvisation, really the only part that matters in some regard, is letting go of your inhibitions. But that's like telling someone who's not the best swimmer in the world to just get over it and jump into the deep end anyway. It's easier said than done. So how do you make it easy so you can actually do it? We know that when we're improvising, there's some kind of dissonance in the areas of our brain that are responsible for self-monitoring and self-expression. And what that basically boils down to is us becoming less inhibited, which is harder than it seems at times. Just ask New York-based jazz pianist and composer Lawrence Fields. You know, um, I feel like it kind of happens in stages. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not like one day you wake up and you're like, this is it today. Oh, I'm letting go. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my space. I have no fear. I'm ready to go. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like you kind of let go a little bit. You know, it's like doing anything. Like if you're a kid and you're learning to ride a bike, yeah. you know, you're not going to instantly be you know tour de france <laughs> you know first you're like can i stay balanced you know right. and maybe you have a parent to be like yeah you could do it and maybe you fall a couple times or something you figure it out and then you're like oh, okay i'm balanced now can i go fast right um so yeah i feel like it's a it's a continual process and the thing about it that's interesting is that you never really know where your limit is in any specific area and so you can get over one fear and then end up confronting another fear and you feel like you're back at square one. Hmm. And so one of the things that's actually really helped me is learning other things. Hmm. Um, I like the feeling of starting something new because it reminds you what it was like. And a lot of times uh. once you learn something, you forget how bad you were at it. You forget what your fears were, you know what I mean? You forget emotionally what it was like for you to start. And so by constantly starting new things, even just things I like, like learning to play a video game or something yeah. and specifically choosing things that I know are challenging for me and overcoming that, that kind of constantly makes me familiar with what it feels like. And so then going back to music, when I do that, it makes me feel more comfortable, sort of like in stages, opening up to the possibility that I could go another step. What does good improvisation feel like for you? Like, when do you feel like you're just on? I mean, it, it feels amazing when it happens. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, like when people talk about being in the zone or whatever, mm -hmm. or almost like, you know, if you had a day and you were bowling and all of a sudden you're just throwing strikes you right. know, or whatever. It's really an amazing feeling uh, because you feel perfectly aligned between what you feel and what's coming out of your instrument. And that is it's really something that's hard to describe, but it just it feels effortless. And it usually happens 
during those moments when you're thinking the least. Mm. And um, I think that's that's another thing that's, that's tricky for people in creative pursuits is figuring out how to cultivate a space where you're as close to that as possible, as much as possible. That's exactly why I was asking. Because <laughs> I think that it's, I was going to ask, I mean, is there a way to duplicate that feeling? Like once you've isolated, like this is what it feels like or is it folly to duplicate that? Because in a way, you're almost like systematizing your creativity, which I think can lead to right. you not being creative. So exactly, how do you reach that point again? Like, what is that for you in terms of like you know what good improvisation feels like? You know that you know you felt you felt it. You were hot. You were on it. How do you get it again? <laughs> so this is one of those things where you know, and this is another thing that's actually kind of helped me to learn in the rest of my life is. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that are not one thing or the other. It's yeah. just a gray space somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, it's impossible to say, well, it's this, it's this. Definitely. You know, and so we tend to kind of want to fit ourselves into a bag to say, okay, how do I do this? Is it this or is it this? Right. All right, it's the left one. All right, let's go left. And so um, to be good at a creative pursuit, you really have to be comfortable with hanging in this indeterminate space in the middle. Mm. You know, it's exactly that. You have to figure out how to manage something that you can't completely manage. But the key is not giving up on it because you can't completely control it. So you say, okay, well, what can I control? Can I do things to put myself in a space of being comfortable? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that happens in practice. It's kind of like fine-tuning your routine as an athlete, Mm -hmm. right? Practice is not the same as the game. But eventually you figure out how to practice in a way where – you're duplicating some kind of movement or some kind of condition that you're going to find in the actual game. Right. And so um, I think mentally it's critically important in practice to be able to manage that and to figure out for yourself what are the things that help you to land there. It could just be basic physical stuff like being rested or clearing your mind beforehand. It could be really specific things like envisioning the environment that you're going to be in for people who have stage fright and things like that, confronting that emotionally So I think there are a lot of different parts to it. Uh, But the key is, again, just learning to say, okay, I know I can't completely control this, but let me figure out the part of it that I can control to help myself be comfortable being in the space. And also, because it's collaborative, um, it it depends on the people you're around. Definitely. You can play with some people and be completely inspired. Right. You can play with other people and be completely uninspired. (laughs) And it's not because, you know, it's a right or wrong in general. It's just that's what works for you. Of course. And so also, you know, for any great improviser, you'll find that usually they found a group of people that they were really comfortable with Mm -hmm. who kind of helped them get to that place. And that's actually a really good point that you brought up because in this conversation of improvisation, I think, Yes, it's absolutely collaborative when you're on stage with, you know, your quartet or your your sextet, whatever it might be. Right. And but I also think that it helps in say like an office setting like where, you know, you we always hear about the the power of teamwork, which, you know, <laughs> as cynical as I am, it is true. It is. Nice. <laughs> I mean, I can't do this podcast on my own. Shout Aww, out to you, Victoria. That's so, so nice. Uh, but, <laughs> well, <producer> Victoria. <laughs> um, but I think that for you, I mean, how has that been navigating that space of knowing where your voice fits in, in this larger group, in this larger picture, and letting other people shine, let you taking the stage? Like, how, how, how do you make sure that, because if everybody's improvising, then, you know. Yeah. It can be kind of like a mess, but right. it's like everyone talking at the same exactly. time. Exactly. So right. how do you? How have you learned to navigate that um, spirit of improvisation in collaboration? I think uh, a lot of it comes from precedent at the start. 
you know, it's hard to learn to have a good conversation unless you listen to other people have great conversations. Mm. And so um, I think that's one of the things that's really critical about improvisation, really about anything creative, is how much of it comes from what came before. And so, you know, sometimes when people improvise, they feel like they're under pressure to just make something up. And to be creative in general, you know, a lot of times we feel like we just need to be in a space and spring something forth, <laughs> right. you know? And... um a lot of times when we do whatever our first big creative work is, we don't realize that the reason that it comes so naturally is because you're building on all these things that you saw for your life leading up to that point. Mm. And so I think it's important to consistently kind of replenish that, yeah. you know, listening to other people and observing how they interact and also taking note of when someone does something that's really supportive. Right. You know? So just listening to other people play, listening to musicians and saying, oh man, like when this one person did this and this other person did this, that really, it really sort of led to a synergy between what they were doing and it really helped that person get to where they were going. So I think just on the sort of the technical side of it, you know, there's a lot of observation of what did this person do to be really supportive and how can I support someone else that way? Nice. Then the other side of it is just personality management, right. you know, like self-reflection, <laughs> you know? Just hard for some people. It is. <laughs> it's tough, but people play like they are. Yeah. And if you can't manage yourself emotionally, if you have ego issues or you always want to be in the limelight, you can't listen to anyone else or make room for anyone else, that's how you're going to play. Ooh. <laughs> Deep. So, <laughs> this just turned into like a self help podcast. I love no, it. No, self reflection. <laughs> that was absolutely true. You have to figure out your own hangups and it's everything true. before you play nights with others. It's so. true. And I have had nights where you could be, you could be emotionally off for some other reason. Yeah, you know, like some other stuff happened. You have, you know, a bone to pick for whatever reason. And it affects your playing because you're you're like, man, I really got to say what I want to say, you know? <laughs> like, I want people to notice me tonight. Right. And so you really have to actually manage that stuff and say, all right, like, am I being selfish here? Right. You know, should I take a look at myself and just take a step back and make sure that I'm fitting into everything, you know? Now, I'm sure that there might be some people out there who think that they have no aptitude for improvisation at all. You may think it's something for the quote-unquote creative people, and you yourself can't drink from that holy grail of creativity. Well, me and a neuroscientist are here to tell you that you're selling yourself short. Here's Dr. Lim again. Now, you don't have to be a world-class physician to understand this. So, for example, everybody knows how to talk, right? And I think there's a big difference. If I told you to, to memorize this speech and give me that speech perfectly versus just have a conversation, I think you'll see right away, oh, that's a different activity. And giving the speech, all of a sudden, even though you know how to talk, there's all these rules in the way. You have to get this right to get that right. And you're very concerned about getting it wrong. And that's very different than saying, you know what? I'm going to forget about the speech. And I'm just going to speak. And so that's why I think when you see public speakers, the people that are reading a memorized thing have a certain lack. It doesn't come across as well in most cases as somebody who's just speaking naturally. And think about a conversation that you have. I mean, when have you ever had a scripted conversation, right? Unless you're an, an actor, it just doesn't happen. And so what you have in conversation is a spontaneously generated interaction. And so I would say that all of us have experience in everyday life, you know, driving home from work, you know, you're, you're improvising your way home. And so there's a lot of everyday forms of so-called creativity that take place where you're doing problem solving and situational contextual problem solving to basically get you through your day. And so I think that 
the way you can kind of translate that to this feeling of, of an artistic version of it is to know that artists are not born suddenly improvising high-level jazz. They practice. They get there, right? They're taking those same brain correlates that we all use in lower levels of creativity, and they're just refining it. They're training it to the extreme so that they can do very, very complex, amazing things eventually. And to me, that lesson has been critical, that every artist I've spoken to has talked about the importance of practicing, that this didn't just start out happening with this. They had to develop And in a way, you get more comfortable with the process of being creative by doing it more. And so I think using your creative facilities is the best way to develop them and bring them out. So let's review. Improvisation is something that occurs in our brain when the area that controls self-monitoring shuts down while the area controlling self-expression lights up, which means that your inhibitions are down and you're able to create and express yourself without fear of being wrong. But as we know, things are far easier said than done. Outside of just telling you to get over it and just do it, try starting a new project. It doesn't have to be a huge endeavor, just any small hobby or exercise that's outside of what you already know. Learning a new skill, as small as it is, can remind you of what creativity and improvisation feels like when you're too in the weeds with what you're doing already. Also, improvisation requires you to relinquish control, and it's not something that's always going to have your desired outcome. You have to be okay with practicing and working in that gray space of uncertainty before you finally reach a state of creative enlightenment. And if you still feel like improvisation is something you can't do, remember that you do it every day. From navigating your way to work to having even just a simple conversation, that's improvisation. Start taking notice of those small moments throughout your day and build on them. Find a way to tap into that everyday improvisation because even something small could spark major creativity. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then. <laughs>